before Disney went woke, this is like, you know, the past couple years they've really went woke with a lot of their stuff, um, they came out with a film in 2015 that is by far one of my favorite films probably they ever did. Uh, they, they worked with Pixar, and they came out with a film called Inside Out. Now, if you have never seen the movie Inside Out, I want to encourage you uh, to go home today on Disney Plus or wherever you are to stream it and watch it. It is worth the hour and 30 minutes of a kid's show. I promise you, if you're like me, I love kid's shows because they have a great message most of the time and they have adult humor, amen? Uh, like Madagascar, if you've never watched Madagascar, you need to go back and watch Madagascar. The penguins are legit. Uh, and I'm just telling you. And so that's like my childhood. Like I grew up in the golden age of Disney, you know, 90s and, and 2000s, just for the record Fallon's not a 90s kid uh, and um, you know I grew up during that time and Inside Out once again 2015 when it came out I was like man this is gonna be pretty cool and the whole premise of the film is built around five emotions built around the five emotions you share as a child all the way up to you get an adult and they really did it well. They did it from birth all the way up till teenage years. And you're inside the brain of a little girl named Riley. And so as she is walking through life, you kind of get experience life from her vantage point, from the emotions inside of her brain. It's pretty great how they did this. And so the first emotion she experiences as a child is joy. Now, if you've got little ones, you know as well as I do, joy is very natural for a child, for a baby. They come out crying and angry, but it doesn't take long. They crack a smile. Um, joy is a big part of being a child. And then, of course, you have fear, you have anger, you have disgust, uh, you have sadness. And so the whole film is built around those five emotions working together to kind of give her a normal experience as a child. And of course, they have a lot of jokes about, well, hey, there's this thing called puberty coming down the road. They're like, oh, that's going to be nothing. And uh, there's a lot of jokes built around it. But I wanted to show you, like, this is her brain. Like, it, like if we're to sh this is what it looks like if the whole film is built around these characters. And of course, Joy is in the center. She has the command center. She is the person that kind of runs everything. You'll kind of see next to her is disgust. If you've never tried to feed a toddler something, they will tell you joy or disgust. Like they hate things, right? They either I love it or I hate it. Uh, next, you've got fear. Fear is kind of like, oh, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? And then as you work your way out, the emotions on the side are not nearly as important as the emotions in the middle. And so this is kind of a child's brain. If you were to ask me, this is pretty accurate. I mean, pretty accurate as far as Pixar and Disney and what they did together. The film is crazy good with showing emotions, showing dealing with moving, dealing with transitions of life, and just talking about childhood, you could say uh, trauma or drama in the life of a child, how they experience different things. It's pretty crazy good. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because Psalms 126 if I was to give my sermon a title this morning, it would be, you know, either Shouts of Joy or, or Tears of Sorrow. Shouts of Joy or Tears of Sorrow. Because you're going to read, as we read through this psalm, you're going to hear the psalmist, he's really conflicted. He says, I have a lot of joy, but I have sorrow. And you're going to see these emotions really taking over in him as he goes through the entire psalms. And so we're in Psalms 126. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. It's a blue Bible. Um, 298 is the page. We're in Psalms 126. We'll be reading the entire psalm. I want you to pay attention to this, okay? My sermon title, I mean my sermon in a sentence, through the journey of life, our part is preserving, God's part is restoring. I'm going to say that again. Through the journey of life, our part is preserving, God's part is restoring. Listen to that carefully again. Our part is preserving, God's part is restoring. So that's very, very important. All right, Psalms 126, verse number 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Verse number four, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. So you really see this as when the psalmist is writing this out, he's, he's, he's articulating his emotions in such a way, he's being very raw with us. He says, like, I am somebody who wants God to restore our fortunes. 
And not only that, but before that, he says what? The Lord did restore our fortunes. And you've got to understand, once again, I'm really big when you're understanding some things. Context, context, context. Like in real estate, location, location, location. It's all about context, context, context. Most historians place Psalms 126 right around the return from exile. Because you, once again, you've got to understand the big picture of the Bible. The Israelites, they go from freedom to captivity. Freedom to captivity. And eventually they get to the point where God tells them, if you do not obey me, I'm going to remove you from the land. And they're thinking, no, this is our land, God. You know, you promised it to us, but now it's our land. You cannot remove us. And sure, what does God do? God sends a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Ever heard that name before, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes in as the Babylonians, and they literally uproot half of the Israelites and take them to Babylon. This is where we get the book of Daniel, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, top baby names for 2022. Uh, You know, those guys, we hear about their stories. Why? Because they are in exile in Babylon, but they are not at home, but they are told to what? Love the city. Take good care of the city. That's where Jeremiah comes in. Because a lot of the prophets, both minor and major prophets, overlap in time because they're going through exile periods. So you have people like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He was the prophet who told the Israelites, judgment's coming. Judgment is coming, and it's going to come swiftly, it's going to come fastly, and we better repent and turn back to God. But guess what? They didn't listen. So Jeremiah gets hauled off with them during exile. You know what he says? Told y'all so. I told y'all judgment was coming. You didn't listen to me. Now they're like, we repent, Lord, we repent. Uh, Because oftentimes we skip over the prophets because we're thinking it's a bunch of doom and gloom and terrible, terrible things. But there is a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy because what does God say? God oftentimes will say this, I have not abandoned you forever, but I will redeem you. I will bring you back to my land. I will bring you back to my land and I will replace your tears with shouts of joy. And this is a theme you see throughout all of Scripture, that there is going to be a time of mourning, but there is also going to be a time of laughter and joy. Let's read those first three verses again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. You know, there is a certain characteristics of people who are dreamers, who are people that can see into the future. There's a certain thing about people who do not need their eyes to be able to see. They do not need their eyes to be able to see. What do I mean by that? You can be completely blind and still have really good vision. Some of y'all miss that, amen? Because having eyes doesn't mean you actually see things. It means you can see what's in front of you, but you don't really see and dream things. And I would encourage some of you that are married, some of you that have longed to be in a deep relationship with somebody, when's the last time you had a dream? Like really spoke out your dreams to your partner and said, hey, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to accomplish. Like for us, me and Emily, we've been dreaming about owning a house for several years, and we've got certain things on our house list that we will not settle for. A deal breaker for us, we've got to have two sinks. We're going to get divorced, y'all. I'm just going to tell you, we've got to have two sinks. Some of y'all thinking, we have one sink and we're happy. Liar! Uh, why? Because we've got to have two sinks. It's a deal breaker for us. You mean like, well, you can take the sink out and put two sinks in. We've got to have it. Like, we've got to have two sinks. My wife has to have an ice maker. Donnie, I'm going to be broke if we don't get an ice maker. Uh, because literally she's like, here I am making my ice again. Uh, you know, and I literally have bought, I mean, it's just crazy. But she's like, i got to have an ice maker. Some of y'all thinking, I've got an ice maker. You're rich. You're rich, right? Because we've got dreams, we've got aspirations, we've got things we've shared with each other. Hey, we want this. We would really love to have this. Because sad reality is in marriage, oftentimes you share your nightmares and don't even share your dreams. You just worry. Worry all the time. What if this happens? What about that? So I want to encourage you, be like these people. Be like these exiles who returned home and they say what? We were like those who dreamed. We were seeing our dreams happening. Look what verse number two says. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. I think this is pretty amazing. It says, we returned home from exile back to the promised land. They arrived back at Jerusalem and says, we were like those who dreamed. We were almost like we longed for this day to happen. It took 50 years. 50 years of bondage before the first group of Israelites went back to Jerusalem to rebuild. Now, during that time, some Israelites were still left at Jerusalem, but the majority of them were hauled off away to Babylon, and so it took 50 years for them to return. 
And when they returned, they were almost like, literally, they were almost like daydreaming, like, can it be real? Can we really get out of this place? Because they held on to hope. They held on to hope, but even when their hopes were being answered, even when their prayers were being answered, even when they were really seeing things they had dreamed about come true, they were almost like, can it really be real? And so look what it says there. This is, our mouths were filled with laughter. Laughter. Isn't it amazing how much laughter is good for your soul? Like you've been around people and you're laughing and eventually you're laughing for so long you're laughing because they're laughing and you're laughing and you don't know why you're laughing. Like that's the good laugh, right? Where you're literally crying like, you're crying, I know. Uh, you know what I mean? And you're literally, because it is, it's so good for your soul to just laugh. Because nobody laughs alone. Like nobody goes, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like when you laugh, you look around like, hey, that was funny, right? Uh, because it laughter is so good for you. Look what it says there, our tongues with shouts of joy. We shouted and laughed with joy. Because as the people of God, we should be marked by joy. We should be marked because we've had a great God who's done great things for us. Guys, if that's not reason to celebrate, I don't know what else is. So we should be marked with laughter and joy. And look what it says. When we are joyous people, other people see it. And they say, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them. The nations around Israel were like, man, the Lord's with them. There's no way you get conquered by your enemy and your enemy allows you to return home. When does that ever happen? It happened here. They were conquered. They were beat. They were, they were literally... Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple. He did everything that God predicted he would do. And God said, I will use the Babylonians to bring my vengeance on you. He did all of that. Guess what God still allowed? God allowed them to go back home. Tell me God's not real. Look at history. Some of you, you've been alive during when Israel became a nation again. Think about how powerful it is. They were disbanded as a nation. They became a nation again. Isn't that crazy? That's mind-blowing, but that's the power of God. The power of God's promise to His people. Look what verse number 3 says. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So it's the nations that first saying, the Lord has done great things for you. And them saying, you're right, the Lord has done great things for us. Doesn't it take some distance to really show you how good God has been to you? In life, it's oftentimes that way. People can see God's hand in your life more than you can see it. And people tell you, man, you're blessed, you don't even know it. You're thinking, oh, yeah, I guess I'm all right. But when you really start taking a few steps back, you're really thinking, man, God's been with me. God's been good to me. So our point number one, we have to hold on to joy tightly. We have to hold on to joy tightly tightly if this earth wants to suck anything from you it wants to suck your joy from you it wants to take every ounce of joy you have now notice what i didn't say and what i did say i did not say your happiness i said your joy happiness is based on your circumstances joy is based on your eternity say that again happiness is based on your circumstances joy is based on your eternity Joy is based on your identity. Like who you are in Christ gives us joy. We should be people who are marked by joy. Joey this morning was in a good mood. He was back there. Hey, good morning. Hey, how are you? And Hunter was like, whoa. How are you, Joey? And he's like, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, but Joey, I mean, Joey has joy this morning. I don't know why. I mean, you know, I, I, but he's got joy. I'm careless. I don't know why either. But he's got joy. Amen. That's marriage counseling. We'll talk, we'll talk later. Uh, but he's got joy. And so guess what? By him bringing joy, other people noticed. Isn't that crazy? Like, I know when you're in a good mood, and you know when I'm in a good mood, but you know when I'm in a bad mood, and you're all in a bad mood most of the time. Because we should bring joy. Hold joy tightly. Because the Jews held joy tightly. They remembered Jerusalem. They remember where they came from. So in the Old Testament, when I talk about them returning from exile, this mainly happens in two books. In two books. In our Bible, it's two books. In the uh, Old Testament for the Jew, in their testament, it is one book. It's one solid book. So it's not two books like ours. It's one book. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, for, for every Jew, when they would read the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were interwoven together. And you're going to see this, what I mean by this, because it has really three movements throughout the books. Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Many people know Nehemiah by name because when I mention Nehemiah, you probably think he was the cupbearer to the king who rebuilt the walls to Jerusalem. That's what he did. That's what he's mainly known as. Um, they did it, I believe, in 52 days. I think that's what it is. Uh, and so there's three movements in the Bible in the return from exile, and they happen by Zerubbabel, 
Zerubbabel was the first movement. He was a guy who led the return, and they rebuild the temple. Okay, they rebuild the temple. That happens in the book of Ezra. They rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel. The next big movement is Ezra. Ezra was a was the priest who he kind of led these reforms and said, "Guess what? We need to be serious about the word of God." So they read Torah reforms, and this is where they read the word of God from morning till evening, and the people wept. When they heard the Torah being read, the Bible says they wept and they cried out because the word of God wrecked them so much, okay? And then the last movement is Nehemiah. So Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of them are condensed into Ezra and Nehemiah, two different books in the Old Testament. You follow with me? This means yes. If you're confused, do this. Okay, uh, all right. So you look at this, you think about how they returned to exile. So we're going to pick up in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Zerubbabel is leading the temple rebuilt, and they complete the temple. And I want you to notice what happens in Ezra chapter 3, verse number 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and some of the Aspha, and the symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively. Donnie, you need to highlight that, amen. Uh, they, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And many, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. So they are laying the foundation of the temple, and they get it all laid. And notice what happens here. They are praising God, shouting praises. You know, the Lord's love endures forever. And the Bible puts this contrast. This is there was great joy, and there was great sorrow. Because the joy, who does the joy come from? The joy comes from the young. The young who had grown up in Babylon, because 50 years, a whole generation, two or three generations were born, right? You follow me? An entire generation who did not know what the temple looked like, who never grew up in Jerusalem, who did not know what the promised land really was, was getting to see God's hand move in a mighty way, and they were like, oh my goodness, can you believe we are here? They had heard stories about this day, but now they were getting to witness it. So the young were shouting and dancing and clapping their hands, and you know they were shouting praises so loud that literally it could be heard from miles away, the Bible says. But in the same vein, there was this group of exiles who they remember when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. They remember when he came in with his forces and broke down and burned the entire city of God to the ground. They remembered Solomon's temple. And so whenever the foundation was laid, they had great joy, but they also had great sorrow. Why? Because they remembered this is not like it used to be. Because I want you to know that when they rebuilt the temple, it was not the same quality that Solomon had built at first. It was nowhere, nowhere close to the same temple. It was the same measurements, it was the same guidelines, but it was not the same splendor that Solomon would pour into it. And this is a big deal. Why? Because you need to remember something. When they rebuilt the temple, this is the temple that Jesus would spend his time ministering in. And if you did not know, brief history lesson here, um, after Jesus dies, he makes the promise, guess what, I will destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, right? He was talking about his body, right? You follow with me? But also, he would tell them, guess what, that judgment's also fixing to come. Why? Because the Romans would come in and destroy the temple again. And this is why if you go to Jerusalem to this day, there is only one wall that is still left of the temple. It's called the Wailing Wall. You ever heard of that? This is the Wailing Wall that is still supposedly, I'm going to say that historically accurate in saying this is the only, left, only wall that's left of the temple that was rebuilt during this time period whenever Zerubbabel rebuilt it with the people. So I say all that to say this with you. The benefit of the young 
is everything is new to us. Everything is new to us. Joy is new to us. Everything is new to us. But after so many seasons of life, you start to see sorrow really creeping up on you in a sense. Because the older you get, the less firsthand accounts you have and the more you compare everything to the way the past used to be. And I even see this in my own life. And I'm just 30, so I can only imagine some of you, you're older and more mature than I am, amen? You compare more, why? Because you've seen more. You've experienced more life. Some classic phrases of the older generation, well, that's not the way it used to be. You know, that's not how things used to be done. Well, this is how we used to do it in my day. And I can only imagine for some of you how different our world looks to you because I know how different our world looks to me. How different our world looks to me. This might blow some of your mind. You used to have to call a number to get the official time and the weather. You used to have to call a number to get the official time and the weather. Used to, you had to have a road atlas. You didn't have a GPS, didn't have any of that stuff. Used to, if you wanted to hear from somebody, you sent a thing in the mail. And you would have to get it back. This is going to blow some of your mind. You used to write on paper and they would give you money when you gave them paper. It's called a check. Amen? Some of y'all, wow crazy. But I can only imagine how some of you remember before the internet. Some of you, you don't remember days before the internet. I remember you had to get on the internet. That man would take off running. You know, he'd be running, right? And I remember our family was so cheap, we never bought internet. We would buy the, 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 we'd get the free trials and the disc in the mail and you'd pop it in. Amen? Every time you get the free trials and pop it in every single time because we couldn't afford to get internet. So my mom's like, we got a free trial. Uh, and every time I'd be about to get on some site to play a game and all of a sudden my mom gets told, go, no! Because it would shut down the entire process. And these days, guess what? You're on all the time. We get frustrated with 3G. If it's not LTE or 5G, we're like, stupid internet, slow. Trash. Because <laughs> it takes a long time. I'm telling you, look how impatient it has made us because there is a patience that comes with getting older that the young don't have. The older ones in this church, you will save money and not pay for things on credit, but you will pay for it when you have cash. You will not put it on credit. You'll say, I've got to wait until we have the money to pay for it. The older ones will buy two of everything and they go to the store, so when stuff hits the fan, they got stuff instead of having to go to the store every day. Your grandparents are that way. You go say, where's the paper towels? It's in there. You open up, it's 50 rolls. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> uh, Because experience has taught them to save things. I'm reminded of the late uh, Charles Driscoll, that if you were to go to his garage till this day over at Sweet Miss Mary's house, you go to his garage, he kept everything. He never knew when he was going to need it. He might be like, well, it's broken. Now I'll put it over. I'll use it. And that was their mindset. Why? Because you've got to remember, a majority of these people who are older in our society today, you've got to remember where they come from. They come from parents who went through the Great Depression. They come from parents who had been through major world wars, who when they came back, they understood, guess what? If there's stuff on the shelves, you don't rake everything off. You leave it for your neighbor because they might need some too. So they remember some things. I remember, you know, and I still hear voices in my head whenever I say this to you. I remember people being told like, hey, the church's heyday here in these states was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because Christianity was booming. Like I heard stories about when people would gather for revival, they'd have to leave the windows up because people would be parked outside. They had brush harbor revivals, tent revivals, and it wasn't because, hey, we're having a tent revival, it's cool. It's because that's all they had. And people would drive miles and miles to be there to be an evangelist who would, who would circulate and go around the areas, and they would show out in the droves. Us young people, we don't never, I, I have nothing to compare that to. Because you always hear about how things used to be. But here's the truth I do know. It won't be just a few decades more, and I'll be that person that says the same way it used to be. I'll be that person, get off my lawn! Because you do feel that role. Because all of us have things in life that we are holding on joy tightly to. And some of us, you might be even holding on to sorrow tightly. And I want to caution you because we have to be people who are able to celebrate but also hold on to sorrow loosely. Because the sad reality of it is, ladies and gentlemen, we can't go back and change the past. What's done is done. 
You can't change it. There's no blue pill or red pill. There is just, this is our reality. And there are some things, I hate to say this, I want to say this to you over and over again, guys, it will never go back. It'll never happen. It'll never be like it once was. Because that's just time. Time marches on. It does. So we can have joy and we can have sorrow, but I want you to really pay attention to this here. Because I want you to know what verses 4 through 6 say in Psalms 126. Verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Now here's the thing. Did you notice what he said in verse number 1? When the Lord restored. Now I'm not an English major, but I know restored there is past tense. And in verse number 4, it is future tense. When the Lord Restored. Restore. He's saying restore our fortune. So he's saying not only has the Lord restored it, but we're looking for the Lord to still restore it. Because here's what happened. They built the temple, but God didn't show up. They built the temple like the first time, but it was different from this, the second time. And the cloud did not fall. God did not fill the temple like before. Because here's the reality. If your house was to burn down tonight and we were to start rebuilding it tomorrow, it would be the same shell, but it would not be the same home. Because what makes your house a home is the memories you have inside that home. It wouldn't have the marks on the side of the ceiling, on the side of the ceiling. Good Lord, tall kids. Uh, it wouldn't be the marks on the side of the walls, wherever your kids grew up. It wouldn't have the, the, the hole on the uh, crown molding where you spent $90 to fix one thing. Uh, like You know what I mean? Like It would not have these things that make your house a home. Why? Because it does take more to restore than you think it does to restore. Because here's what they didn't do. Whenever 9-11 happened, they didn't take all that stuff from the two towers and rebuild a new tower. No, they cleared the ground. Because here's the thing. No matter how much we wanted to, pay attention to this, no matter how much we needed them to, they could not take all that debris and build the same thing. They couldn't. There was too much damage done. There was too much destruction. It would be impossible to take every bit of dust and destruction and make it again the two towers we saw whenever we were kids. So what did they have to do? They had to remove all of the old and build something new that remembers the old but stands for something new. It honors the past, but it embraces the future. See what I'm saying here? So whenever the psalmist says, the Lord did restore, what he means is, guess what? The Lord took us back, and the Lord let us build the temple. But look what he also says, Lord, restore our fortunes. Because there's a longing there between the present and the not yet there's a longing there between hey i'm not where i need to be i'm not where i want to be if you were to be honest with yourself if you were to be completely honest i was really probe your brain right now i promise you nobody in here is exactly where they want to be even as happy as you might be and you might have a great life like me and emily we have we're very blessed in a lot of areas of life but guess what we're not where we want to be there's some things in my life I'm trying, there's some goals and dreams I'm trying to check off, right? I'm not where I want to be. Several years ago, whenever I was still a single man here at the church, I went through a really rough season of church. Where we had a lot of people leave, had a lot of stupid things happen, and I, I was single. I had nobody at my home. I went to bed alone, stayed up alone, went, went everywhere alone. And I remember I was just, I one day broke down and weeping in front of the elders, and I was like, I just, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I think I should be. I think I should be somewhere else. And I remember Kenneth came over and put his arm around me and said, Pastor Nick, I'm in my 60s, and I'm not where I want to be. Because we're all there. We're all between the present and the not yet. And there's tension there. Because we long for something more. Like we long, there's got to be something else out there. And I want to tell you this. This is just me being really, really honest with you. I feel that tension almost every week. Like I'm not where I want to be, not where I need to be. And it's because, guess what? Our souls are made for eternity. It's that tension because we're not made to feel at home here. Like, we long for heaven. We long for a complete restoration. We long for the day where COVID's no more, where cancer's a memory. We long for the day when, guess what, race is not a war, but it's something to be celebrated. We long for a day where we link hands with each other and we're all free. We long for that day. And between now and then, guess what, we have tension. So that's why he says, God, restore us. Restore us like the streams of the Negev. That's like a, a river that flows. Guess what? They're praying for the rain. Because here's the truth, guys. 
Here's the truth. It's not the flood that brings growth. It's the rain. It's the drizzle. It's the slow mist. Because you get too much rain, it creates a flash flood. It creates a flash flood. It will cause more damage than it causes good. So you want that slow, steady rain. We still need rain to this day. It rained the other night for a couple hours, but we need rain. We need a good rain, right? We need that dark green on the radar. We need that rain that trickles in and just saturates the ground because that's where real growth happens. And that's why he says these next couple verses. Look at verse number 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Don't miss this, church. Our joy oftentimes springs from our tears. Because you don't know sweet until you first tasted bitter. You don't know it. You don't know good until you've first tasted bad. Because that's just the ebb and flow of life. Look what verse number 6 says. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Now what verse 6 doesn't tell you is there's a lot of time there. Look what he says. He who goes out sowing will come back with sheaves full. Between that time period, there's months and months of watching the harvest work, watching the harvest come up, and you feel powerless because you can't do anything. Because some of you right now, you've been sowing seeds of sorrow. Just seeds of sorrow. And you're thinking, how can God bring good out of this? You, you read Romans, you think all things work together for good for those who love God, called according to His purpose. You're thinking, that doesn't sound like me right now. And I'm going to let you know, there is some truth to say. There is a lot of truth to say that sometimes you won't even see the harvest until you get on the other side of eternity. Because God doesn't promise to make all your rainbows and butterflies happen overnight. But, does, but God also does promise, listen to this, God does promise to restore all things. He does promise to restore all things. Because the end of the book ends with God restoring all things. There will be a new heaven and a new earth that will make all things new. He'll make all things new. All things. That's all things, guys. The Greek for all things is everything. All things will be made new because God's going to bring it so. So there will be tears of sorrow. There will be seasons of sadness. But I'm also a firm believer there will be shouts of joy again when we bring the sheaves home. There's a lot of work in between those. Our point number two, we hold on to sorrow loosely. We hold on to joy firmly, and we hold on to sorrow loosely. Because if there's anything this world wants you to be fed a constant stream of its sorrow. You think about how jacked up this is. Think about how jacked up our news feeds are. On my news feed right now, if I were to pull up my phone and get on Facebook, I would have a celebration of birth. I would have maybe an engagement. I would have maybe even a child's birthday. In the same feed, I would have a cancer diagnosis. In the same feed, I would have somebody's loved one who passed away. In the same feed, I would have a missing child alert. In the same feed, I would have somebody who can't find formula on a shelf. All in the same feed. And I say that to you, and I bring your attention to this, because for us, guys, it is really hard to be joyous people in a land full of sorrows. And so you've got to let those sorrows at times pass through your hand like water through your hand, like water through a brook. But you've got to hang on to joy. You've got to fight for joy. Because there is a time to grieve. There's a time to be sorrowful. Absolutely, if you're somebody who's went through great loss, there's a time for that. There's a time where you feel the weight, and you're like, man, it's crushing, it's crushing, and it's crushing, but you can't live in that grief. You can't live in that sorrow. Why? Because it will chew you up and spit you out and take every joy from you you've ever had. So there has to be a time where you've got to say, guess what? We felt that, and it grieved us, but there's also going to be a time where we say, guess what? We're going to look to joy now. We're going to look to make things better now. And there are some of you in this church, I have no way to, to relate to you because I've never been through things you've been through. I've never been through things like that. But I do know there is not a person in this book who has not been through something you've been through. I'm going to say it to you again. There's not a person in this book, in this Bible, who did not go through your circumstances. 
who God did not redeem and restore in enough time. He might not do it in their lifetime, but he did it in their eternity. You better write that down. He didn't do it in their lifetime, but he did it in their eternity. I think of people like Naomi. I think of people like Naomi and Ruth. And you think about their story. If you did not notice, Naomi uh, ends up losing both her sons. They die of some type of sickness. We're not told the sickness. She loses her husband and both her sons. She's a widow, and both her sons die, and she's left looking at her daughters-in-law. One of them's named, I believe, Opal. I think that's her name. And the other one's, of course, named Ruth. And uh, Ruth, the one leaves away. She goes away. She says, I can't be with you. Go and make children. I had no other sons for you to marry. You're released from your vows. Go on. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your God will be my God. Where you go will be my, where I go. Your home will be my home. Your country is going to be my country. She's a Moabite woman. So she follows Naomi back to her home country. And while she's there, they catch the eye of a man who has the godliest name in 2022, Boaz. Ruth catches the eye of Boaz, and Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He is the only one who can redeem their family. Why? Because they had certain marital laws where for you to be restored to where you once was in the society, you had to have a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz comes into the story, and he literally comes in like a knight in shining armor, and he rescues Naomi and Ruth, and he saves them from calamity. And Naomi's testimony, I want to read this to you. At the first part of the book, Naomi says this about God, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She says, I've lost my husband, I've lost both my sons, God has taken everything from me. God has left a bitter taste in my mouth, rightly so. I never look at somebody who's been through loss and says, well, God's, you know, God's been good to you. No, that's, God's been bitter, it seems. It seems in the moment God's been bitter to you. Even though it seems that God is bitter, I do know God is good, but I'm not going to come in and be like, you're fine, you're good, suck it up, buttercup. You don't do that to people who are grieving. You don't say anything with them when they're grieving. You just put your arm around them and say, I'm here. You just sit with them in the ashes and feel it. You can say what you want to about Job's friends, but I'll tell you one good thing about Job's friends, his three friends that show up, they didn't say something for a couple days. For several days, they didn't say a word. They didn't say sorry for your loss, they just said, we're just here. Because your silence with your presence is more powerful than your voice with your presence when people are grieving. It's your silence that brings power and presence. Like, I'm just here. If they want to talk, you talk. But you don't say anything unless they want you to talk. Because Naomi says what? The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Because here's the truth, guys. You don't know the tears people in this room have cried last night. You see the joy of the harvest, but you never see the tears of the the rain, do you? The sorrow behind closed doors. Some of you think being single is uh, really, really bad. Let me tell you, what's worse than being single is being lonely when you're sleeping next to somebody. That's worse than even being single. Because there is times where you feel lonely. There is times you have sorrow. There is times you go to bed crying mad. There's been times like that. And you never see that. We don't post it on Facebook. Hey, we had a big fight. How are you? You don't say that. Because you don't want people to think bad of you. You don't want everybody to think you're sheaves of joy. No tears of sorrow. But you don't know who in this room has been struggling financially. You don't know who in this room has been struggling maritally. They're fighting like cats and dogs on the edge of a divorce. Maybe the papers are signed and they're waiting to be sent to the attorney tomorrow. You don't know who here and here has a wayward son or daughter who they haven't spoken to in months. You don't know who in here is watching you through a great season. They've been having a horrible season. They have anger and resentment towards you because you're in a good season. And they know it's wrong, but they can't get over it because they're just mad. They said, God's been bitter with me. You know how I know all those things? Because I've been those persons every single time. You don't know. You don't know who's sitting in the pew beside of you. You know their name, you know their job, but you don't know their 
season. You don't know it. Because Naomi says, guess what? The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. But the end of the story, the end of the story in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 through 16 says this, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her a conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than the seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid her on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and then named him Oped, and and was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Because here's the thing, nobody had seen Naomi's cries, nobody had seen Naomi's seasons of rough, hard, hard life. But guess what? Everybody gets to see their joy. When life brings joy. And I say that to you because I want you to pay attention here. This is the last big point. I'm going to be done with you, I promise. Psalms 30, verse number 5 says it like this. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Point number three. Sorrow teaches us lessons that joy never could. Sorrow teaches us lessons that joy never could. Because sorrow teaches you something that joy can't teach you. It teaches you compassion. I'll be honest with you, um, if I was to be really transparent with you, I struggle with compassion. I have compassion fatigue sometimes because I hear so many bad things over and over again. It's really hard for me to be compassionate. Emily's compassion is 114. And that's more natural for a woman than it is a man. I think that's very, very true biologically. Um, But she doesn't struggle with compassion like I do. I struggle with empathy as well. Empathy and compassion do not come naturally to me. Now, I will say this. After being married, I've gotten more compassionate. I've gotten more empathetic. And even more than that, after having a daughter. Somebody told me, when you have a girl, it'll change you. I'm like, ah, I can't be I want a boy. Wanted a boy. And then, of course, I had a girl. I was like, ugh. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm, like, I'm excited, but I'm kind of not excited. But then after Esther, like, I'm, I look at her and think, she changed me. She rocked me. Because she taught me compassion and empathy like I never had before. And I say that to you, and I say this to you because I want you to know that these are lessons that are taught the hard way in life. Like gratitude. You don't learn gratitude unless you come from nothing, hardly. Gratitude and thankfulness are things you have to learn to appreciate the older you get because you have to either come from nothing or to work really hard for something. So these are lessons in life you have to learn through the seasons of life because joy, because sorrow teaches you lessons joy never could. So Riley's brain, if you remember from our very first intro, I'm tying a knot on this. You stay with me. Riley's brain at the beginning of this, I told you how Joy was at the helm of the command center. And she had, she had fear to one side. She had disgust to one side. She had sadness on the edges. She had anger on the edges. In that same film, they show you the, the brain of the mom and the brain of the dad. And I think it does a beautiful job of showing you our current predicaments, which we're in. The top is the command center of the dad. This is of a male, right? And you can see anger is at the helm. Anger for most men is a very quick emotion we can go to because it gets things done. You know when you yell your kids will obey, but you also know you feel extremely bad every time you yell because you know it's not the right way. You get angry and you get mad because guess what? Anger is at the helm. Next to anger, you've got some sadness. You've got some fear. But look where joy is at on the male brain by this standard. Joy's on the outside. Because here's what I hear from a lot of people. I can't worship the Lord because I just don't feel anything. That same guy in the NFL stadium is a different animal. That same guy, whenever the cats are playing, is a different, different cat. That same guy, whenever this song comes on, like Metallica, uh, Puppet Master, especially with Eddie slaying it, Obey your master. You get up, man. You're jamming it. 
That same guy, why? Because it's all about where your joy really is. Is your joy in the NFL team? Is your joy in the Wildcats? Is your joy in the 80s and 90s, I mean 70s soul and 80s rock? Or is your joy in your creator? So this is not easy stuff. This is moving emotions around, you can say. This is managing our emotions in a healthy way. So that's the male brain. You can kind of see on top. I can relate to that. I think if we polled most guys, you would be that. You would say anger's at the helm for me. You would probably say sadness is right there with us. Why? Because the same man who gets really mad can get really sad. You don't believe me? Uh, I promise you, <laughs> more than anything, you get really mad, then you feel sad because you got mad, then you're mad because you're sad, because you're sad, because you're mad. It's always the way it works. So that's always happening, right? The bottom is the lady's brain. You can kind of see on the bottom there, we've got, you know, sadness at the helm. And so sadness most of the time becomes very natural more for the female than it does for the male. And I say this in a lot of ways. Why? Because our culture has caught on to this. So they bombard females all the time saying, you're not good enough. If you look like this, they would love you and respect you. If you did this, they would love you and respect you. And some people have abandoned this altogether and said, nobody else matters. Just you matter. Speak your truth. Because sadness does come more naturally to some people, and anger comes more naturally to some people. But I would say this, ladies and gentlemen, we have to do a job of always fighting to put joy in the center and be marked by people of joy. And say, I'm going to choose joy today. You know what? Gas is high. It costs a buttload of money, but guess what? I'm thankful I can pay for my gas. Because you know what's truth? Everybody in this room, gas is an inconvenience for us. It's not a deal breaker. You know how I know we're all rich? You know how I know everybody in this church is rich? You can let your tank fill up. You run your AC. You've never been poor before. Why? Because you're poor, you don't run your AC because it's going to bring gas miles down. You can't afford free on to put in it. You got an AC 2 by 70, two windows down going 70 mile an hour, amen? That's how you know you're rich. You feel rich. Why? You have blankets when you go to somebody's house or come to church. Guys, I'm telling you, right now, as bad as things are, it is an inconvenience to us. So you've got to choose joy. You've got to look for joy. You've got to look for joy. You might be like, well, she didn't do what I want. Celebrate what she did do. Celebrate what she did do. I'm preaching to myself. It might not be exactly what you wanted. Celebrate that got you something. Choose joy. You might be like, well, I don't have everything I want. Get in line! Get you a ticket because you've been really, really blessed. You might be like, if I just had this one thing, if I just had this one thing, I would have joy, Pastor Nick. If I just had this one thing, I would have joy. I promise you, if you had that one thing, you still wouldn't have joy. You'd want something else. Because contentment is great gain when it's godly contentment. Be satisfied in Christ. Because if Christ isn't enough, nothing else will be. And you might be looking at my life from a glass house like a pastor, you got everything you want. I promise you, we do not. I promise you, I battle the same battles you face. I have family drama, family troubles. We've got marriage issues. Got all kinds. I worry about how we're going to pay this bill, pay that bill. I have stress and anxiety like you do. I cuss in my head. I don't say it out loud. Amen. Some days I do. I have the same struggles you have, so I'm preaching to myself here. Because I want to hold on to sorrow tightly and hold on to joy loosely most times. Because it's easy to be sad. It's easy to go home and turn on Netflix for two hours instead of communicating with your spouse. It's easy to give the kids an iPad and say, I just need, I need three hours. That's easy. It's easy to yell and get what you want. It's difficult to use your words to convey how you feel in a pleasant way. And I'm telling you, church, we can do hard things. How do I know you can do hard things? You learn how to walk. You learned how to read. 
You got dressed this morning, you drove here. At one point in your life, those were all hard things, but now they became easy things. Why? Because you put your mind to it. I'm telling you, we can choose joy if we put our mind to it. You know what the fruits of the Spirit is? People forget this. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. It's right after love. I don't even knew that or not, but literally, look it up in Scripture. Joy follows right behind love. Because oftentimes people say, we should be people with love, love, love. And I'm all about, we should be people with love. But love expresses itself, more often than not, through great joy. Through great joy. Nehemiah said it like this. He said, the, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Think about how powerful this is. The joy of the Lord, that's my strength. I've got joy in the Lord. And there's nobody who can take that away from me. Because we used to sing a song when we were kids. you remember the song? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine. Because the reality is there's going to be things that are going to come to try to, to blow out that light. Put it out, snuff out, and say, put it away, because we've got to shine. Say, so guess what? It's not the joy in my circumstances, it's the joy in my Savior that brings me the most joy. Hold joy tightly. Hold sorrow loosely. And always remember, the sorrow has a purpose, because the sorrow teaches you lessons joy never could. And I promise you, through the journey of life, it is not our job to restore. It is our job to persevere. It's God's business to restore. If you get busy trying to restore your life, you'll be really frustrated a lot because only God can do certain things. Pray like it all depends on God. Work like it all depends on you. Work like it all depends on you. Pray like it all depends on God. Because there's only certain things God can do. And I'm praying with you. Some of you, I know your struggles. I know your concerns. I'm praying with you. God, bring, bring life here. I'm praying with you. God, bring growth. I'm praying with you. God, bring healing. By the end of the day, God's not our puppet. At the end of the day, God's not doesn't work for us. If God chooses to do something, it's because He wills it. And if He chooses not to, He wills that as well. Because we trust the potter. Because we're the clay. That's easy for me to say right now. But guess what? There's going to be a season I need you to remind me of that as well. We trust the potter. Because he's good.